0: Amen, Well, you guys can have a seat. Um, this morning session is a session where you really need your booklet. If you have your booklet, go ahead and grab it. If you don't have it, run quick and grab it. Otherwise, it may be hard to kind of track along, as we're going to cover uh, a lot of ground this morning as we deal with meeting Christ in the scriptures. So if you have your booklet, go ahead and grab it. Uh, you might need a pen. That would be helpful, too. Uh, I hope that this is going to be a very practical session as it relates to helping you and equipping you uh, as you interact with Christ in the scriptures and as you're kind of settling in and getting your booklet out, uh, uh, one couple things have been confirmed this morning. One is that Jeff Hundley and, and Colin McMillan are the coolest people I know. Uh, they, they've done some things I, I, I would not have imagined. And, and, uh, and on a, another note, my wife was on time for our wedding. She, she made it, so uh, that was good. I was just hoping she'd show up at all. I didn't care if she was late or whatever. And... Uh, <laughs> I just wanted her there, and so she showed up, and that was good, and and everything got started on time. Um, Well, uh, so last night uh, we started dealing with this idea, or last night the goal was to just get a perspective on the Bible that says we want to magnify Christ through the Scriptures, that we are to read the Bible in such a way that says Jesus is the is the main point, he's the central figure, he is the hero. Uh, So the Bible is a book primarily about Jesus and secondarily about us. It does involve us. It has things to say about the lives that we lead, specifically as it relates to our faith in Christ, Um, but we want to read the Bible, always running to Jesus as the hero, not only of scripture, but of our lives, and ultimately the hero of the entire universe. When you think about what Jesus lived for and he died for and he rose from the grave for and And what he will one day uh, bring into reality with the new heavens and the new earth and all those types of things. And so last night we did talk about how Christ is the primary content and focal point of the Bible. We try to model that and show that from a story that's familiar to many of us, David and Goliath. Uh, This morning, we're going to turn our attention to meeting Christ in the scriptures. Not only is the Bible a book about Christ, the Bible is a book designed to help you meet with Christ. Uh, The Bible is a living document, is a living word where you and I are able to engage with the words on these pages in dependency upon the Holy Spirit, praying and talking and conversing and listening to Christ, and so we want to figure out today how do we, when we sit down with our Bibles on a Tuesday afternoon or a Sunday morning or whatever the case may be, how do we, as a people who are who are uh, looking to Jesus for everything as the point and purpose of our existence, how do we meet with Christ in the Scriptures? How do we maximize our interaction with the Bible? And to do that, um, I've got a lot of notes there for you. Don't be overwhelmed by the number of of, of lines on there. We'll move fairly quickly. I, I know that this is quite ambitious, and it might be we'll chalk it up to holy ambition, which is a good thing. Uh, but try to cover this much material. But the idea is just to put this stuff before you, put this stuff into your uh, at your disposal, and then you can process later, and you can talk about these things with others, and you can reflect back on some of these principles and some of this guidance, Lord willing, that I will give you to maximize your time in the scriptures so that you will become a person, a disciple, who is regularly meeting with Christ by reading the Bible and studying the Bible and growing in your knowledge of the Bible. So, uh, to start, let me just say that uh, the the whole plot line and the storyline of the Bible really turns on four major moves. And these four moves are very important for our understanding of the overall storyline of the Scripture. My hope is this summer to carve out some time for our church and really, even anyone really who wants to come together on like a Friday night or a Saturday night and really dive into some of this stuff in more detail and in more depth, kind of do some intensive training and teaching on some of these things. And and this is one of the areas I would like to do first, and that involves the the storyline of the Bible or the big picture of the Bible. And so the big picture of the Bible, the storyline, turns on four major moves. First is creation. We know that, that the Bible begins with creation, of God speaking everything into existence. We know that God created human beings in his image. That means he endowed us with dignity. He endowed us with a divine purpose and a divine intention. And what it means to be created in the image of God is that we are wired, uh, at least, we are wired to engage in a, an interpersonal relationship with the creator of the universe, We are to know him, we are to know one another, and then we are also to carry out a purpose. And then you read Genesis chapter 1, that purpose involves uh, procreation, filling the earth with more image bearers, and it also involves stewarding the earth, stewarding the earth well. And then, so that's where the Bible begins with the act of creation, but then you know that the storyline of the Bible turns south in Genesis chapter 3 with what's called the fall, and that's when everything gets sideways, that's when everything gets wrecked. Now, when we talk about the fall of humanity and the fall of creation, we're talking about something deep. We're talking about something that has affected our humanity in a pervasive sense. As people born outside of Eden as a result of the fall, what that means is that there's not one single faculty of your humanity that has not been affected by the fall. So that human beings do not think well. Human beings do not feel well. Human beings are not physically well, which is why our bodies are subject to decay and deterioration and disease and those types of things. Every aspect of our humanity has been affected by the fall. That means our reason is jacked up, our emotions are jacked up, our psychology is not right, our physical health is not right. That's what it means to be uh, fallen in the Bible. One of the words that theologians like to kick around as it relates to this is called total depravity. Uh, That might be a word or a phrase that you've come across. Now, when we talk about total depravity, it does not mean that human beings are as bad as they could be. Uh, God and his common grace prevents us from being as bad as we could be. He he holds us back from ourselves all the time. Uh, But what total depravity means is that every aspect of your humanity and my humanity and everyone's humanity has been distorted by the fall to some degree. And so with that, when it comes to the storyline of the scripture as you move from, well, the fall affecting us in that way, but it also means that the fall affected everything in creation that way. The world itself is now in conflict with itself. This is why you have things like hurricanes and earthquakes and volcanoes that cause destruction. This is why uh, thorns grow up in gardens and the the earth has to be toiled and labored to cause growth to come from it. There's a conflict even within creation that has been the result of the fall or sin entering the world. And so, creation and then fall, and then the second or the third big move in the storyline of the Bible concerns redemption. It concerns moving through the story of the Bible. You get into Genesis chapter 12, and God calls Abraham, and he makes some promises to Abraham about how he's basically going to set everything right. He's going to create a people for himself, and he's going to bring blessing to the world. And it's all contingent upon his grace, not necessarily humanity's merit or whatever the case may be. And then you trace the storyline of redemption through Abraham and his descendants, and this is where you get into the big narrative of the Old Testament, which involves the people of Israel. And all along the while, Israel is is being uh, worked in and worked upon by God to do some incredible things. Now, the people of Israel uh, mess up a lot along the way, but all the while, God is faithful to say, look, I'm going to bring about redemption through uh, this descendant of Abraham who's going to come through the people of Israel, and that brings us ultimately to Jesus, so that when Jesus would step onto the scene, he would do so as the, uh, as the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the king in the kingdom of God, and he would live and die and rise again. So you have creation, you have fallen, and you have redemption. And then after that, you have what's called recreation. And recreation means that God is in the process of set everything right because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And one day, he's going to bring all of creation into a new harmony uh, in the presence of Jesus fully And finally. And so what that means about the Bible, if you hold on to creation, fall, redemption, and recreation, again, we'll go into more detail on that in the fall, but if you hold on to that, it helps us to see the chief concern of the Bible. What is the chief concern of the Bible? And I put it this way in your notes. The chief concern of the Bible is for you and I to know Christ and the holistic salvation God offers through him. The holistic salvation that God offers through him. This means that when you and I put our faith in Jesus, God is doing a work within us that will bring healing to every aspect of our humanity that has been affected by the fall. God is setting our minds right. He's setting our emotions right. He's setting our lives right. One day, he's going to set our bodies right. This is why the resurrection of Jesus is so important. There's coming a day when he's going to give all of his people glorified bodies, new bodies that aren't subject to decay and death and disease and all those types of things. So when we talk about salvation or redemption in the scriptures, I want you to think about it as a holistic dynamic. We have a tendency sometimes to think that only God is only concerned with our souls or our spiritual lives, but that's not true. God is concerned with your emotional Welfare. God is concerned about your uh, mental state. God is concerned about every aspect of your humanity. And the guarantee that we get in the gospel is that there's coming a day when all of that is healed. All of that is made right. All of that is renewed as we are new creations. And so we have a lot to look forward to as it relates to our salvation. So we wanna think about salvation in a holistic kind of way. And God is saving us now, or he has saved us in Jesus. He's continuing to save us by making us new and helping us to grow in our faith. And then one day, he's gonna bring our salvation to completion, where we are entirely new people. And so it's, it's a really comprehensive thing. And the Bible's concern is to bring us into that dynamic. The Bible was given to us by God so that we might know Christ, and the holistic salvation God offers us through Christ. And this is there are several scriptures there that I'll just point out. I won't read all the scriptures that are listed in your notes, but I'll identify some of them. The first one there, John 17, 3, makes this fairly clear. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's how Jesus would define eternal life. Eternal life isn't simply about going to heaven when you die. Eternal life is knowing God through Christ Jesus, is being brought back into that relationship that you were created for. And that relationship is going to affect all of us deeply. But then there are several scriptures there that talk about how the Bible's intent and purpose is for you and I to know Christ. Jesus would say this in John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus would say, these are the scriptures referring to the Old Testament that testify about me. Meaning everything you read in the scriptures along the storyline of creation, fall, redemption, and recreation, it it all is driving to you and I knowing Christ. Again, in Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus, this is who's talking, or who's this reference to, Jesus explained to them, these two disciples on this road to Emmaus, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, saying everything in the scriptures was written about me. I I am the content of the Bible. Then Luke 24, verse 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That was the traditional breakdown of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, everything in the Old Testament, it's about me. It's all fulfilled in me. The ceremonial laws, the sacrificial system, everything that you read about in the Old Testament, it's all pointing and driving to Christ and what we live for, die for, and rise from the grave for But then you have this verse in John 17, 17 where Jesus would say, uh, talking about his disciples, people who would trust in him, he would say, sanctify them, talking to his father in prayer, sanctify them according to truth. Your word is truth. That word sanctify just means to change them. It means to renew them. It means to make them fully human, make them holy, make them distinct, make them the way you intended them to be. That's what Jesus is praying for. This is why, again, we would say that the chief concern of the Bible is for you and I to know Christ and the holistic salvation that God offers through him. So the way in which God ordinarily renews our lives, revives our lives, transforms our lives right now is through our interaction with the scriptures, our reading of the Bible. Now, with that in mind, that's kind of the chief concern. We'll move on to the four characteristics of the Bible that I'd like for you to have kind of in your mind every time you open the Bible and you approach the Bible, hopefully to instill a little bit of confidence as you approach the scriptures. Now, uh, my goal in this session isn't to provide an apologetic for the Bible. I'm not interested at this stage in explaining why the Bible's reliable, where the Bible came from historically, and those types of things. That is a conversation worth having. We'll probably do it at some point in the future. But right now, I'm assuming that we are, uh, that, that uh, I'm assuming the fact that the scriptures have been breathed into existence by God through a variety of human authors and has gifted us this book so that we might know Christ and the holistic salvation that is offered through him. And when you think about the Bible, there there are some characteristics about the Bible that, that we need to kind of hold on to. The first characteristic is this. You can be confident every time you approach the Scriptures, every time you study the Scriptures, every time we preach the Scriptures, you can be confident knowing that the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. That's one of the core characteristics of the Scriptures, there's one verse that I did not include in your notes, but I encourage you to write down the reference you can look at later, but it's First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to what we read. It says that all scripture, and again, in that context, he's referring most immediately to the Old Testament. All scripture, everything in the Old Testament is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the people of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. He's seeing that, that all Scripture, and he's referring to the Old Testament. The New Testament is obvious like, to, to see where the, the writers are referring to the Holy Spirit's work in them to bring that in to be. But one, one of our struggles in today's society as well, is the, is the Old Testament very useful? Is the Old Testament very profitable? The Old Testament seems so ancient, seems so foreign. Can we really understand it? Is it really useful in my life? And here, uh, we are told that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is all useful. It is sufficient for our lives. It is sufficient, meaning it can do every. It's it's really essentially all that we need. Um, there was a movement in the 16th century known as the Protestant Reformation. Now, you're probably familiar with the Protestant Reformation. That's where our line or expression of Christianity today kind of comes from. It comes from this, this Reformation movement that happened in the 16th century. And one of the key uh, convictions of that era was that disciples, followers of Jesus in that day, wanted to return to what was called sola scriptura. How many of you have heard the phrase sola scriptura? Uh, it's a, it's a, it was a key pillar of the Reformation, meaning only scripture or scripture alone, and it was an idea of getting after the sufficiency of the bible but we have to understand that phrase sola scriptura we have to understand it well because what it does not mean is that the bible alone it does not mean that you you can't benefit from other from your reason or from history or from tradition or from other teachers it doesn't mean that it just means that the bible is sufficient It is sufficient in what it has to say uh, about everything that it speaks on. In other words, when you read the Bible, you're not going to find an exhaustive source of information. It doesn't address everything that exists in the world, it doesn't address every school of thought in the world. It's not exhaustive in its information, but on every topic on which it speaks, it speaks sufficiently, it speaks truly. And so you might read some passages in the Old Testament. Sometimes uh, the Bible is accused of being anti-scientific, which is crazy. And one of the reasons why it's accused of that is because there are passages in the Bible that are written what's called (laughs) anthropomorphically, meaning from a man's perspective, from the human perspective. And so a lot of times a human writer and a human author would write something uh, and describe it as it is perceived or as it is seen. For example, when you read in the Old Testament story of Joshua, it talks about how the sun stood still, and um, there's these passages that give the impression that, that, the, that um, this, the earth sits at the center of the universe, and everything's revolving around us. But again, remember, the Bible is written from the perception of our humanity, and, and so an analogy today would be, how do you describe a sunset? If you were to talk about the sun going down, is the sun moving? No but that's how you're perceiving it. And so in our language, natural speaking, everybody understands what we're talking about when we say the sun is setting. We know the sun's not moving, but that's how it is perceived, and so that's how it is described. Or the sun is rising. The Bible is sufficient in all the truth that it conveys, and so we want to hold on to that conviction and know that there is confidence to be drawn from that. Second characteristic is that the Bible is clear. The Bible is a clear book. And this is encouraging for every one of us in this room in the sense that you don't have to be a pastor or a scholar to read and to profit from the Bible. You don't have to be a scholar, you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to read the scriptures and to know Christ and the holistic salvation that God offers through him. The Bible is clear in its message about salvation. Psalm 19 would put it this way. There the writer of the Psalms would say the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. There is a clarity to the scriptures that means any person can pick the Bible up and read it and benefit from it. I said this a couple of weeks ago that occasionally I'll I'll reference Greek and Hebrew on a Sunday and I'll talk about the Greek and the Hebrew of the Bible. But the only reason why I do that isn't because uh, the general message of what I'm saying isn't clear. I just do that to add some texture, to add some color, to add some flavor so we can get a a more uh, particular understanding of a given passage. But that doesn't mean you have to know Greek and Hebrew in order to read and to profit from the Bible. The Bible's general message about salvation in Christ is clear to those who would read it um, in that way. Uh, There was a document written back in the 16th century, 17th century, known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And this is what it says about the clarity of the Bible. Listen to this because it's fairly important. It says, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known. Necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and open in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means, that means your, your reading, your interaction with language, your thought processes, ordinary means, may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. And what that means is that... While I say the Bible is clear, that is not to say that every passage or every part of the Bible is equally clear. Uh, we can be honest about the fact that there are some tough texts in Scripture that are hard to understand, um, that require a little more work, a little more digging, but to say that the Bible is clear means that um, everything that is necessary to be known and believed and observed for salvation is clear. It, is, it can be understood but then the third characteristic I'd like to put before you is kind of a presupposition on this dynamic is that the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. So it is, it is sufficient, it is clear, and it is authoritative. And you see this, the, the Bible's authority, the word of God's authority is displayed all over the Bible. I just want to give you two examples. When you open up the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, have you ever wondered why the Bible begins the way that it does? with God speaking everything into existence. Sometimes I fear that we miss the point of Genesis chapter 1 because we want to take a scientific approach to Genesis Genesis 1 and we want to talk about the days and what does day mean, six days, many days, young earth, old earth. We get into those conversations and a lot of times those conversations cloud our understanding of what Genesis 1 is designed to do. The way Genesis chapter one is written is that it's written to highlight the authority of God's word. This is why you have 10 structures in that chapter, and God said this, and it happened. Let there be light, and there is light. Let there be this, and there was this. Let there be that, and there was that. Genesis chapter one is a, you might say, a doxological uh, celebration of the authority of God's word. It's authority and it's power. And so you're supposed to read that, And be in all. God's word is authoritative. When God speaks, things happen. And it also means that if you read anything that's attributed to the word of God, you need to read it submissively. You need to read it humbly. You need to read it recognizing that his word is authoritative um, in our lives. And so Genesis chapter one, and we'll come back to that one in a moment, but that's one, uh, the way the Bible begins is to really highlight the authoritative nature of God's word and ultimately the scriptures. But then another way in which we see that the Bible is authoritative is in how the early church, the first Christians, related to the Bible. When you get into Acts chapter 17, there's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, and it's one of my deepest prayers for the Hallows Church. Acts chapter 17, you have a, a group of people. They're referred to as the Bereans because of where they were from. And these Bereans would come to the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul would teach them from the Bible. He would open up the Old Scripture, the Old Testament. He would talk about Jesus. He would teach and preach the Scriptures. But what is interesting is that the Bereans did not just take Paul's word for it, they didn't just accept everything that Paul said blindly. It says in Acts chapter 17, what they did was they honored the authority of God's word, saying that the written scriptures are my ultimate authority. They are my final account for how I'm going to live my life and how I'm going to understand who God is. That means, Paul, if you say anything that doesn't measure up with scripture, I'm I'm not listening to you on that. And so it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, listen to how the Bereans interacted with the Bible or the, the teaching of the scriptures. It says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. The Thessalonians didn't do this. They were were kind of pains. But anyways, it says that they received the word with all eagerness. So they wanted to hear from God. They wanted to know God's way. They wanted to know Christ and his holistic salvation. And so examining the scriptures daily to to see if these things were so, they would hear Paul and then they would go back to the scriptures and they would examine them to see if what Paul is saying is right. And one of my deepest desires for the Hallows Church is that you guys would start checking me. You guys would start checking every teacher and preacher in the life of the church. Anytime we open the scriptures and we communicate realities from the scriptures that you would do due diligence in going and examining the scriptures, saying, okay, is what he's saying correct or is it off? And, and if, if I do uh, say something that isn't entirely true or faithful to the scriptures, you know, we can talk about that. Uh, this isn't the type of community where you can't ask me questions or challenge my even my interpretation of some things, but it does mean uh, that all of us together are ultimately looking to the Scriptures as our final authority, as the authoritative uh, source of truth and our knowledge of Christ uh, in the life of our church. And so, the Scriptures then will get the final word in the midst of our of our church and in our um, as we journey through this thing now. Again, to say that the Bible is sufficient and clear and authoritative, um, it also, we we do recognize that faith is needed for our understanding of the Bible, um, that there are, again, parts of the Scriptures that are difficult to understand. And one of the things I love about the Bible is how honest it is about itself. Uh, the, The writers in the Scriptures are honest, they are real, uh, they're, they're not polishing anything, they're not twisting anything to make something sound more palatable or more believable, they just kind of put it out there, and that's kind of how God's word is. It's, it's not a lion that you and I have to defend, it's just a lion that we let loose, and it'll do its thing. And, and so I love this, because in Second Peter, there's this moment uh, where the apostle Peter is talking about Paul. And he's talking about some of the things that Paul has written. And he admits, you know, some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. Uh, they don't seem to me as to be as clear as some of the other portions of what he's writing. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. He says, These are some things in them that are hard to understand, referring to Paul's writings specifically. But then, get this, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do uh, the other scriptures. And the word ignorant and unstable, that, those descriptions there are used all throughout the New Testament to refer to people who do not really believe, who want understanding before faith, who do not recognize that faith is needed before understanding. And so faith is needed for understanding because what that means is that if you come to the to the Bible and you read a passage that you don't understand, uh, you don't try to twist it to make it say something you want it to say. Uh, it doesn't mean that you reject it as something altogether uh, unknowable. It just means that in faith and humility, you seek understanding. You press in deeper. You go further. You start having conversations. And you refuse to render a verdict on a text if that text isn't... Uh, clear or understandable, or if it seems difficult, faith is needed for you and I to understand uh, how the Bible leads us to put our faith in Christ and the holistic salvation that God offers through Him. And so those are three characteristics that are quite significant for you and I to get the most out of the Bible. We need to know that the Bible is sufficient. It tells us everything we need to know about salvation. We need to know that the Bible is, is relatively and generally clear. You can read the scriptures and come to a faithful understanding of the gospel, uh, reading your English translations of the Bible, reading normal passages on a regular basis. Number three, you need to know that the Bible is authoritative, that God intends for the scriptures to get the final word in your life and the final word in our church. And then number four, uh, you need to know that the Bible is necessary. The Bible is necessary for us. We need the scriptures. And one of my favorite descriptions of this found in the New Testament is 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is talking about the word, the word of the gospel, the truth of Christ that is coming down through the scriptures and and he gets to this moment in 1 Peter chapter 2 where he uses this metaphor, he uses this image. Moms and dads, you'll know this very well. He says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. He's telling the church he's writing to, I want you to become like a newborn baby. And I want you to crave spiritual milk. And what is the spiritual milk? The spiritual milk there is the word. It is the truth of Christ found in the scriptures. He's saying, I want you to crave it. And then he says, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. And so he's affirming that the Bible is necessary. The Bible is necessary for our lives. It's necessary for our faith. It's necessary for our growth. And like a newborn baby craving pure spiritual milk, you and I need the scriptures, right? It means that we need it. We have to have it. We can't live without the scriptures. But not only do you see need there, you have this desire expressed. And he says, craves pure spiritual milk. It's as though Peter is telling the church, I want you to want the Bible. I want you to want the truth of scriptures. I want you to crave it. Because the Bible is necessary. We need it. Yes, we recognize that. But he wants you to go deeper than just needing it. He wants you to want the scriptures. And I know that might raise some questions in your hearts and your minds because there's a lot of days we wake up and we don't really want the scriptures. Uh, We kind of need it, so we take it like medicine, but we don't always want it. It's not always just our hearts aren't really beating with the deep passion to read the Bible and to get into the scriptures every day. and, And that's on us because we're not functioning as fully human people yet. And so there's a conflict sometimes between our need for the scriptures and our desire for the scriptures. And so what do you do with that? What do you do in your discipleship when you don't have a desire for the Bible and you're not interested in reading the scriptures? Well, I would encourage you to think along these lines. There's a picture of this that was given to me in New Orleans um, of, a couple, of uh, a couple that is now married, but before they got married, the guy was getting ready to move from New Orleans to Florida, and he walked up to this girl that he's known his whole life, and he was, he was attracted to her, and, and he believed that they were going to get married one day. So out of the blue, this girl, it wasn't anywhere on this girl's radar. He walks up to her and he says, okay, I want you to marry me. And she was taken aback and she says, what? Yeah, I want you to marry me. And she looks at him and says, but I don't love you. And immediately his response was, you will. (laughs) But I don't love you. You will. That was his response. Now, she didn't at that point. Uh, she heard that word, and she just kind of, okay, whatever, dude. And, and he moved <laughs> off to Florida, and, and I was working his job, and about five years later, he moved back. He came back to New Orleans, and he saw this girl again, and, and he still had this intention, this ambition to marry her. And the girl would describe the story. You know, the next time I saw him, it, everything was kind of different. I kind of viewed him in a different light. And he pursued her again, and he asked her to marry him, and eventually she said yes, and And they got married, and and when talking to the young lady about their relationship, we asked, well, what changed? You know, because he he tried to get you to marry him once before, and she said, well, it was that moment when he looked at me and said, you will. His words just kind of resonated in my mind, and I couldn't shake them for the next five years. (laughs) And then eventually, you know, as she just kind of held on to those words eventually her heart came around and she began to see this guy in a different kind of light and her heart kicked in and she found herself falling in love with this guy. So all that to say is if you're a person who understands that yeah, we need the scriptures, we want the scriptures, we want to crave the scriptures, but we don't always want them, let me encourage you just with the words, you will. (laughs) You will. Keep reading the scriptures Keep disciplining yourselves to consider, the word of scri- of the, the, to consider the words that are found in the Bible. Read the Bible, study the Bible, talk about the Bible, recognize that you need it, press into it on that front, and as you do so, you'll find your desires coming around. You will find yourself wanting the scriptures. You will find yourself knowing Christ so well and, and coming to a better understanding of the holistic salvation and the life he offers you that, that you're going to want more and more and more and more of him. You know, it is not uncommon to understand that life in this world, usually delight always follows discipline. Delight always follows discipline. Ask any pianist, any person who's learned to play the piano, those first few times they sat down and did so, they, it was hard. Their fingers didn't quite go where they wanted them to go. The, 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 the tune didn't quite sound like they wanted it to sound. It wasn't fluid. And so a lot of discipline goes into anyone learning to play the piano and But as they discipline themselves, recognizing that there is reward in the practice, there is reward in the discipline, they keep going after it. They keep disciplining their fingers and playing and playing and playing and practicing and practicing and practicing. And eventually that discipline turns into delight. Well, when it comes to needing the Bible, you're disciplined to read the scriptures, to study the scriptures. In faith, believing that it's good for you, believing that your heart will kick in, eventually you will find yourself, uh, again, your delight following discipline. So the Bible is necessary. We need the scriptures. We want the scriptures. And then third, we can't grow without the scriptures. This is what Peter's main point is. He says, I want you to crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. You can't grow without reading the Bible. You can't grow without studying the scriptures. So if we're going to grow up in our faith, we have to drink, we have to read, we have to engage, we have to study. And I can't help but wonder if some of our spiritual growth is stunted because we're just not drinking, we're not eating, we're not, we're only, uh, maybe we're only eating once a week, and if you're only eating once a week, you're not going to grow very much. Uh, So we want to be the types of disciples who are eating every day, who's spending some time in the scriptures daily, eating, growing, eating, growing, eating, growing, doing, uh, letting the Bible be for us what it is intended to be for us. So those are four convictions we want to hold on to as we view the scriptures, that the Bible is sufficient, it is clear, uh, it is authoritative, and it is necessary. And because it is necessary, that's going to lead us into this next section. How do we approach the Bible? How do we engage, the, if we really need it, if we want it, if we can't grow without it, okay, uh, I'm there, I want to start growing, I want to start reading, how do I do so? And so this next section deals with approaching the Bible. How do you approach the Bible in such a way where you're meeting with Christ in the scriptures? And, and as you step into this next section, you have a couple of thoughts there. One is, uh, there, there's something that we tend to do. What we tend to do uh, when we approach the Bible that there, there's a tendency we have that we want to avoid You see, a lot of times we don't get the most out of the Bible because what we tend to do is we read a passage of Scripture and then we jump immediately to application. We'll read a passage and we'll jump immediately to application. And the step that is left out of that equation, if you read and apply, which is what we tend to do, we miss out on what we should do, which if we're reading a book, if we're listening to God, if we're interacting with Him, there needs to be reading Then there needs to be what's called interpretation and then application. You see, interpretation prevents us from doing crazy things in response to what we're reading in the Bible. I'll give you an example. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Famous verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's every athlete's favorite verse, right? It's the verse I wrote down on the bill of my baseball cap growing up. It was always in the bill of my hat. And I had this understanding, I read that verse, okay, I'm going to apply it by putting it in the bill of my baseball hat, then when I step out on the field, I'm going to be the best player on the field. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I I can hit a home run, even though the fence is way out of my zone, right? And I remember one time as a kid, I was on the all-star team, but as a team, we had to practice on a field that was much out of disproportionate to who we were as little leaguers, and so the fence was way too far for us. But I convinced myself that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to step into the batter's box, and I'm going to hit the ball over the fence, something no 12-year-old could ever possibly do at that stage. And, and I stepped into the batter's box, and I just knew it was going to happen. I had my chest kind of pumped up. I said, my coach is going to be impressed with this. And the first pitch came, and I swung, and I made contact, and I just kind of flipped the bat and just kind of started walking this way the ball went just behind third base in foul territory. I mean, it was a little blue. I hit it with everything that I had, and it didn't go, it didn't make it to the left fielder. It wasn't fair. It was just a little blue foul ball that fell in me. But my coach saw what I was doing. He didn't like it. He, he ran to me and just began, he let me have it. He probably talked to me a way a coach shouldn't talk to an 11-year-old, but that's what he did. But this idea of, of reading and applying just reading a passage and then immediately drawing application can be dangerous. It can cause us to treat the Bible and look for the Bible to do things for us that it was never intended to do. You might read a story like Genesis chapter 22 about Abraham and Isaac and God telling Abraham, go up onto this mountain and there you're going to sacrifice your son. I want to know that you fear me. And you might read that and think, okay, well, what's the application? If you don't interpret that story, you're going to do something stupid, right? Right? <laughs> If you don't interpret the story in light of the gifts and the resources that God has given to us to be able to interpret the Bible and to understand it, then you're going to draw some conclusions that you don't need to draw. Uh, some moms and dads are like, I'm going to read that tonight. My kid, I'm taking them up to the mountain. Um, (Laughter) If you haven't heard the story, Abraham doesn't sacrifice his son. He's obedient. He does what God tells to do, and then God provides. It's another picture of why the Bible's all about Jesus. That's what that story's all about. And, um, but, or you may read it and say, okay, well, Abraham went on a long walk up a mountain with his son, and so the application, I'm going to take that story and be, well, my, God wants me to go on a walk with my kids. Uh, you know, God may want you to go on a walk with your kids, but it's not because of Genesis 22. Uh, you don't just read it and then apply it. And so we want to think about uh, what we tend to do so that we might avoid that, so we don't get ourselves into some some sticky situations, and we want to emphasize what we need to do, which is to read, to interpret, and to apply. Now, I noticed underneath that read and apply, there's a few approaches there, again, that I want to kind of put before us as things to avoid, one of which is what's called the emotional approach to reading the Bible. The emotional approach that says, I'm going to read a scripture, and I'm going to do what feels right to me. The problem with this what feels right approach is that There's a lot of things in the scriptures that you're going to read and it's not going to feel right to you. There's a lot of things in the scriptures that you're going to read and they're going to challenge you. They're going to contradict you. They're going to go against you. And so what do you do with those passages when you come to those moments? If it doesn't feel right, you're going to dismiss them. You're going to do like Thomas Jefferson did with his copy of the New Testament. Thomas Jefferson took his copy of the New Testament. He did not like the miracles that were present in the Gospels. He did not like thoughts about judgment. He didn't like some of those harder truths. He literally took a razor blade and carved out passages of his New Testament, took them entirely out, and created what was called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Um, That's the emotional approach. That's reacting to what you're seeing in the Scriptures and not liking it and then wanting to do away with it. We want to avoid that approach. Because the reality is every human being on the planet Every culture in existence is going to read the scriptures, and on some level, the Bible's going to contradict them. On some level, the Bible's going to say things that they don't want to hear. Uh, it, it's just going to happen. I mean, if you think about who God is, if God is a person with a personality, then it makes sense. There's going to be things about who God is that might rub you the wrong way. But again, because he's God, we want to conform to him, right? Um, then the second thing there is what's called the pragmatic approach. And this means we're gonna read the Bible and we're gonna do what works best for me. The problem with this approach is that it views the Bible as a means to an end other than Jesus. The pragmatic approach says, I'm, I'm gonna read the scriptures and I'm gonna do what works for me. I'm gonna listen to the passages that, that seem to uh, work for me to get a certain outcome in my life. And I'm gonna view the Bible as a means to an end. And the end is other than Jesus. The end is something for me or um, for some, some blessing that I want to achieve or acquire in my life and so I'm gonna take a pragmatic approach and as a result, I'm gonna misread a lot of scripture. And then the third one there is uh, the superficial approach. The superficial approach is something that says, what does this mean to me? And this is probably the most common mistake we make in our missional communities. It's the most common mistake we make in our Bible studies with others. When a Bible study leader looks at the group and says things, okay, what does this verse mean to you? What does this verse mean to you? And then you go around the room and you get competing and contradictory thoughts on what that passage means to you. The operative word there isn't what does the passage mean. There is, there is meaning in every scripture that we're studying. The, the problem there is that what does it mean to me? Uh, what is my perspective on this? What is my understanding of this? And, and if you have competing perceptions then somebody's not right, right? And so one of the biggest mistakes in our our Bible studies, particularly in groups, is that we ask the question, what does this passage mean uh, to me or to you? And then you get conflicting ideas. And the problem with that, that struggle is that you get a confusion between meaning and application, between interpretation and an application. Now, it is possible for you to study the meaning of a passage and take away different points of application, So that your response to a passage may be different from my response to the passage. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. And so application can vary in a Bible study. And they do all the time because God meets us where we are. He has concern for us in every situation and moment that we're in. But that's not to say that there's different meanings to be drawn from a given passage. Especially if those meanings are, um, they seem to be contradictory. So the superficial approach is, again, another approach we want to avoid. A lot more can be said about this. I'm going to try to move quickly, though. So what do we need to do? What we need to do is read the scriptures, interpret the scriptures, and apply the scriptures. So interpretation is needed. We have to study the scriptures to come to a meaning of the scriptures as it relates to our lives, as it relates to our church, as it relates to the world that we live in. And so I want to put before you what I'm calling the doxological approach to studying the Bible the doxological approach. Now, that's a big word. It's not one you use very often, but it's a a word that I think is very important. The word doxological, it's made up of two. The word doxa, which means glory. The word logical, which means words or sayings. In other words, uh, the doxological approach is about sayings of glory. It's about praiseworthy words. The doxological approach is about reading the Bible in order to worship Jesus. That's the goal in our approach to reading and studying and interpreting every text in the scriptures. We want to interpret every passage in such a way that leads me to worship, that leads me to ascribe praise and um, adoration of Jesus. It's the doxological approach, meaning worship. And so here's the, or here's the predominant question. I want us to learn to ask as we're studying the scriptures, as we're reading the Bible, in what way or ways is the Holy Spirit leading me to worship Christ in and through this passage? In what way or ways is the Holy Spirit leading me to worship Christ in and through this passage? This passage was given to me for a reason. I want to understand it. And in light of my understanding of this passage, it's to drive me to worship Christ. It's to drive me to serve Christ, to honor Christ, to obey Christ, to worship him. And that's, the, that's what I mean by the doxological approach. The goal in our studying of the Bible is to worship Jesus. The goal in my preaching of the Bible every Sunday is for us to worship Jesus That's the goal every week. That's the goal every day. And so the doxological approach, I have a a few headings there I want to just again put before you. And again, I know this is a lot. We'll process later. The first of which is um, the doxological approach, this idea of in what way or ways is the Holy Spirit leading me to worship Christ in and through the passage. This means that you and I, uh, if we're going to take this approach, we have to place the Bible over our lives. We have to place the Bible over our lives usually, or there's a tendency in us when we approach the Bibles is to want to stand over the Scriptures and to pick and choose what we want to believe, pick and choose what we want to read, pick and choose what we want to hear, pick and choose how we want to obey or various things. We want to stand over the Bible, which makes us kind of an editor, and arbiter of the Scriptures. But the doxological approach says, no, if the Bible is what it is, if it is God's word written, and if it is authoritative, then I can't stand over it, I must come under it. I must submit to the teaching of the scriptures. You see a picture of this in Ezra chapter 8. Sorry, Nehemiah chapter 8. That's some typo. Nehemiah chapter 8. There's this moment where the people of Israel have been brought out of exile and and they're being brought back into the land of promise and God is kind of reconstituting them as his people in the world. And and so they build the walls around Jerusalem and they're, they're getting ready to move back home, basically. And then Nehemiah tells Ezra, okay, if if we're going to be God's people, if we're going to go about this thing again, we need to give ourselves to his word. We need to give ourselves to the scriptures. And listen to what happens in Nehemiah chapter 8. There comes a moment when Ezra, who was a scribe, he opened the book, referring to the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. He opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. So the people stood up. But the book was above them, and it's a dramatic picture of how the scriptures, how God's word is to always be above the people. Now, it does say that Ezra was above the people, but it has nothing to do with Ezra. He has everything to do with the scriptures or the book that he had opened up in the book that he was reading, dramatizing for the people that the scriptures will reign over God's people, and this is how it should be in every generation from then on. And we should be a people who are brought underneath the word. The word is governing us. The word is guiding us. The word is what we're submitting to. If there's something in scriptures we have a hard time understanding or that we don't like, we don't try to change it. We try to come to a better understanding so that we can carry it out and be submitted to it. So the doxological approach starts there. It says, okay, the Bible is over me. I'm not over it. And then the second aspect of approaching the Bible this way is that we want to engage the Bible with our minds. We want to engage the Bible with our minds. This is part of the ordinary means that was referred to earlier. We want to engage the Bible with our minds, meaning we want to interact with the Scriptures. To be under the Scriptures don't mean you don't ask questions of it. It don't mean that you don't wrestle with the Scriptures. You engage the Bible with your minds. We were created in the image of God. God has a mind. He's given us minds. We use our minds in the study of the Scriptures. And so if we're going to engage the Bible with our minds, that means first we read the Word, right? Pretty simple. If you want to meet with Christ in the Scriptures, you just need to read the Word. Take some time, open it up, and read it. Spend some time reading the Bible. I worry that sometimes we spend far too often listening to what other people have to say about the Bible rather than actually reading it ourselves. We'll read books written by other people that talk about the Bible rather than reading the Bible itself. But if the Bible is what it is, And if it's a gift to us so that we can know Christ and his holistic salvation, then we need to actually read the scriptures. So we want to come to the Bible, open it up, read the scriptures. And here's some qualifiers on how we can read it. First, read the word dependently. As you come under the scriptures and as you engage the Bible with your minds, reading it, read it dependently. And here's what this means. Although the Bible is sufficient and the Bible is clear and the Bible is authoritative and the Bible is needed, understand that there is a dependence we must show upon God every time we read the scriptures, that we can't fully understand in a transformational way uh, the teaching of the scriptures apart from God's help. So every time you open up the Bible to read it, every time you sit down, you open the Bible, you're about to read some words, don't just jump into it without praying, Don't just jump into the Bible without saying, okay, God, I want to come under the scriptures. I want to understand the scriptures. I've been told that your word is clear, that it's sufficient, that it's authoritative, that it's needed. Okay, I'm going to believe those things and approach the Bible. Now I need your help as I read it. So Holy Spirit, help me. That's our prayer. Every time we read the scriptures, Holy Spirit, help. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit is making these realities known to us. And so we want to ask Holy Spirit, help me read the book that you've given to us. So we want to read dependently. We want to read intentionally, meaning you want to read on purpose. Here's what I mean by that. You want to read the scriptures intentionally. Another word I thought about using is strategically or systematically. What I mean by that is that when you read the Bible, don't always just throw the Bible up in the air and wherever it opens up and land your eyes on a verse in the middle of a chapter with no real context. You just start reading it and trying to interpret it and trying to apply it. No, we... If the Bible is a book, and if it's made up of a bunch of books, there's a flow to every book. There's a structure to every book. There's a context for every book. So we should probably read it like we read books, (laughs) meaning uh, it's good to read from start to finish if you're going to start a book. It's good to read from beginning to end of Philippians. It's good to read from beginning to end of Matthew. And so we want to kind of reduce the time where we're just pointing and shooting and throwing a dart at the scriptures, and wherever the dart lands, that's what I'm going to read and reflect upon. If, you, if, you, if that's the way you normally read the Bible, you're not going to really grow in your understanding of the Bible. So you want to read with a bit of a plan or a bit of a system or a bit of a strategy. One book that I highly recommend is called For the Love of God. And For the Love of God is a Bible reading plan. And it takes people through the Bible in a pretty in-depth way. And, and it, but it is very much a system, it's very much a strategy, and it, it provides some structure to your Bible, Bible reading and now, there is a danger to Bible reading plans such as that because if you have a Bible reading plan that's kind of driven by date, okay, on February 28th, I'm supposed to read these texts, you miss February 28th and you're wondering, what do I do now? And so you miss a day and you fall behind and you never pick it up again. Don't, don't sweat it. Don't become so enslaved to this system or to the form or, to the, or the tool that's been given to you that you just bail whenever you fall behind. Uh, stick with it. Just start with whatever day you are uh, on if you do follow that type of thing. And so all that to say is you, might, you want to read with a bit of strategy, with a bit of intentionality. You just don't want to point and shoot every time. If you need help with that, uh, there's a lot of folks here who would love to help you find some system and a, an a, and intentionality to your Bible reading. Then also included there repetitiously, meaning if you're going to read a passage, let's say you're reading Genesis chapter 3 one day, you read the whole chapter, read it more than once. Read it a few times. Read it over and over and over again. If there's a passage you're reading for a given day, uh, read it multiple times repetitiously. And then as you read, read observantly, meaning make observations about what you're reading. Pay attention to the details. Pay attention to the words. Pay attention to the flow. Pay attention to what it is you're reading. Just engage your mind. But then also don't be afraid to read read the Bible imaginatively. Don't be afraid to read the Bible imaginatively. Try to put yourself in Abraham's shoes when he's walking up the mountain leading his son to this place of sacrifice. Think about what Emotions he might be feeling. I mean, you don't want to psychoanalyze him, but you can use some imagination in your your reading of the Bible. You want to put yourself in the shoes of those that you're reading about and seeing in the scriptures. And then lastly, I would encourage you as you engage the word with your mind that you would read the word carefully. You got to read the word carefully. Uh, You got to read the word responsibly. You got to read the word humbly, which brings us to the second dynamic. Not only do we want to read the word, we want to examine the word. You want to examine the word. The doxological approach is committed to examining the word. And here's what we mean by that. If you're going to interpret the Bible, if you're going to bring out meaning from a text that is going to be then applied to your life or applied to other people's lives or applied to our church, then you have to examine the word to understand whatever passage you're reading in its immediate literary, historical, and cultural context. You have to seek to understand a passage in its immediate literary, historical, and cultural context. Three words there, immediate. That means its immediate context. If you're reading Genesis chapter 3, you're paying attention to its immediate context. What was in Genesis chapter 2? What's happening in Genesis chapter 4? What's happening in the entire book of Genesis in general? Its immediate context. So you have literary, historical, and cultural. The word literary there is the one I really want to comment on because literary... This aspect of the Bible gets overlooked too easily and too often. Sometimes we have a tendency to think that if uh, we we forget that the Bible is comprised of different literary genres, and if you don't have an understanding of literary genres, you're not going to be able to interpret the Bible responsibly, because you're not supposed to read every passage the same way, and the same tools of interpretation do not apply to every passage in the Bible. In other words, there are some passages you need to read literally. There are other passages you need to read figuratively. Some passages in the Bible are poetic. And you do not interpret a poem the same way you would interpret a letter written from a person to a group of people like the epistles. So there's different genres in the scriptures and we need to be aware of that and we need to know what literary form our passages are taking so that we can make a responsible faithful interpretation for example literary uh, i'm often asked do, do you as a church take the bible literally or figuratively and when i'm asked that question my answer is always the same yes and they always look at me well what does that mean <laughs> you have to pick one or the other no i don't I don't, neither do you. Don't let anybody force you into saying, okay, it's either literary, it's either literal, or it's figurative. Both are present in the Bible. There are passages that need to be read and interpreted literally, the resurrection, right? Jesus' death on the cross, literal, he died. There are passages that need to be interpreted figuratively. For example, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Do you really, I mean, there's some things that are so obvious, they don't even worth really wrestling with but do you really think jesus means to carve out your eye if your eye is causing you to sin no it's a figurative expression and it's obvious he's saying take sin seriously and so you interpret it figuratively you don't you don't apply it you don't read and apply because then you're going to go eyeless for the rest of your days you're going to read you're going to interpret and then you're going to apply that's our that's the doxological approach so literary, historical understanding that every Bible has a history behind every book in the Bible is is dealing with aspects that have happened in real human history. There's a culture behind the scriptures, and there are resources available to us to help us understand some of those things. Good study Bibles identify these things for us. I would encourage the ESV Study Bible if you're looking for a resource. The ESV Study Bible is really strong. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible just came out with a study Bible that is really really uh, helpful, uh, and it comes highly recommended from some friends of mine. Although I haven't looked at it myself. And then cultural context. So there's ways in which we can examine the word to understand a passage in its immediate literary, historical, and cultural context. And by examining the word, this means we're gonna start asking questions of every passage that we're reading. We're gonna ask simple questions, like who, what, where, when, why. We're just gonna ask who, like who wrote this passage. When knowing the author of certain passages helps us understand why that author may emphasize certain things that he does. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, we know with fair certainty that the writer of the gospel of Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. That's cool to know when you're reading about Jesus healing other people, and he's healing other people using non-traditional means of medicine. And you have this physician who's not cynical. He's not skeptical of that type of thing of happening. He's recording it. He's writing it. He's conveying it. It's pretty awesome. So who wrote it? Who originally read it? Who are the first readers of the passage? We want to kind of get some flavor on that if we're going to understand and interpret a text. Here's where that can be very significant. Return with me to Genesis chapter 1. Again, I said that Genesis chapter 1 was a, book, was a chapter highlighting the authority of God's word. Now, if someone were to ask you, who are the first readers of the book of Genesis, what would you say? Well, we know, again, with fair, fair amount of certainty that the first readers of the book of Genesis were the Israelites who had just been brought out of Exodus, or Egypt And they are now at Mount Sinai, and they are receiving what? They're receiving the word of God, the law. They're receiving specifically the Ten Commandments. And then understanding that it's the Israelites who've just received the Ten Commandments, you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and you see that that whole chapter is structured around ten sayings, and and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said ten times. That's going to change how you receive the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's gonna, there's some authority behind this God's word. And if the universe exists as a result of his word, and his word's that authoritative, then if he tells me to do something, I better do it. If he tells me to not do something, I better not do it. That, those are the first readers of the book of Genesis. So we want to interpret it, again, theologically. Who is this God? How is his word authoritative? Asking questions like who wrote it, who first read it, it all helps us to get a a robust understanding of what the Bible's teaching. Who are the main characters is another one. Get into the what. We want to ask questions like what is happening in the text. This helps us make some good observations. What is being emphasized in the text? What words are repeating itself over over and over and over again in a given text or a given story? What tension is present in this text? What problem exists here? What is the author saying? We want to ask those types of questions. We want to ask ask questions like, where? Where is the writer when he's writing these words? It's helpful to know that Paul was in prison when he's writing the book of Philippians. Knowing that, having that detail enhances your understanding of of a given story. Because what that does is it says, okay, if Paul's joyful in that situation, then joy must not be dependent upon situations and circumstances, right? You can be in prison and still be joyful. Then he says, where are the original readers when they're reading it? Where is the text being written? Where is the events in the passage taking place? We just want to learn to ask these types of questions. When? When was it written? When is it addressing? Is is the language of this passage past, present, or future? What's the tense of the verbs? We want to engage the Bible mindfully in these kinds of ways, examining the scriptures. When did the events in the passage take place in relation to everything else in the book and in the Bible? So if you're talking about creation, fall, redemption, recreation, and you're reading a passage, you kind of want to know where that passage falls along that paradigm and along that pattern. Because again, that will help you, uh, that'll keep you from drawing conclusions that you shouldn't draw from interpreting and implying the scriptures. And then why? Why is the author writing this? Why do we have this book in the first place? Some books are very clear, like John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why do we have John's Gospel? We have John's gospel so that we believe in Jesus and have life in his name. That's why we have it. We don't have to create a purpose for the books. Usually the authors tell us that they use purpose clauses and phrases to cue us in. So we don't have to make something up uh, in our Bible reading. So why? Why was this given? Why was this passage included in the scriptures? Why did the events happen the way that they did? Why did the author say what he said? We just want to learn to examine the scriptures by asking good questions. And again, we're asking good questions, not because we're standing over the Bible, but because we're standing under under the Bible and we want to have the best understanding of the Scriptures as possible so that we can read, interpret, and apply. And in the process, we're going to be led to worship Jesus, which brings us to this next point. Not only do you want to examine the Word, this is perhaps the most important of them all. You want to cross-examine the Word. You want to examine the Word, but then you want to cross-examine the Word. And here's what we mean by this. Not only do you want to understand a passage in its immediate literary, historical, and cultural context by asking basic questions of a given text, you want to cross-examine the word so that you might understand the passage in its ultimate redemptive historical context. You want to interpret every passage in the Bible as it relates to the person and the work and the salvation of Jesus If Jesus is the content of the scriptures, if the Bible was given so that we might know Christ and the holistic salvation that God provides through him, then we want to cross examine the Bible to understand the passage in its ultimate context. This means you ask broader questions. You ask, you pan back and you ask bigger questions. For example, you ask, what does this passage reveal about the character and the purpose of God? When I read this passage and it says something about God's justice, and I want to know, okay, what, is, what does justice look like in this text? What does, it, what does this passage reveal about the character and the purpose of God? I want to ask that type of question. I want to ask, what does this passage reveal about the fallen human condition? How does this passage expose me as a fallen human? How does this passage show me my need for Christ, my need for the Savior? How does this passage expose my dysfunction and my need for help and healing and restoration? You wanna ask, what does this passage reveal about the person, work, and or teaching of Jesus Christ? You wanna ask questions like, what does this passage reveal about our identity in Christ? How does it affirm our security in Christ, our identity and position in Christ? You wanna ask, what does the passage reveal about our obedience to Christ? How does this passage lead me to obey Jesus? And then, of course, what does this text reveal about our role in the mission of making disciples of all nations? How does this passage spurring me on to engage that which God has called all of his people to do and to be about. And so we want to cross-examine the word, which means we're asking the types of questions that take a passage and elevate it on a much broader plane so that we can have, find timeless, transformative principles that are ultimately what we apply to our lives on a given basis. Now, I can't underestimate how important that dynamic is. I don't think you understand a passage until you have cross-examined it. You can't apply a passage until you have cross-examined it. It's not enough for me. What we do what's, in the Howell's Church, we do what's called expository preaching, which means we try to bring out the meaning of a passage. Now, I do not think I've done my job if I've only told, told you what a passage means in its immediate historical literary cultural context. If I only define words that are present in the passage and I only do that, I don't think I've, I've done my job. I don't think I've served you well. The only way we can get after the meaning of the Bible is if we view every passage in light of its uh, cross-examination or in light of its, you know, who God is, who we are, who Christ is and what he lived for, died for, and rose from the grave for. We have to read the Bible the way Jesus seems to have read the Bible in Luke chapter 24 the law, the prophets, Moses, everything point to me. So every passage points to Jesus. Every passage is to be integrated into the dynamic of the gospel. And so as you pray for me and other Bible teachers in the life of the church, pray that we would do that faithfully, pray that we would do that well, pray that we do that consistently. And here's another thing I would encourage you to do on a Sunday. I would encourage you to pay attention to how I try to do that on a Sunday basis or how Jeff will try to do that on Sunday. If you pay attention to how we're trying to show Christ and to interpret a passage in light of the Gospels, that's going to help you when you sit down to read the Bible. It's going to help you uh, gain some of those skills and gain some of that knowledge so that you too can do similar things when you're sitting down and studying the Bible on your own to engage this doxological approach. So don't just hear what we're saying. Pay attention to how we're coming to the conclusions that we're coming to. And then let that sink into your study of the Scriptures. So we want to examine the word, we want to cross-examine the word, we want to sink the Bible into our souls. Again, the doxological approach is more than just gaining an intellectual understanding of what the Bible is saying or teaching, we want to sink the Bible into our souls so it's having an effect on us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, uh, we are told to let the word of Christ, the truth of the gospel, that which God has spoken, let it dwell in you richly. Let it dwell in you richly. You've got to sink the Bible into your souls. Let it inhabit your heart. Let it inhabit your mind. And so you want to do things like memorize the word. Spend some time memorizing the scriptures. Do you have a plan for memorizing the passages of the Bible? Is that a regular practice in your discipleship? If it's not, let me encourage you to make it. You, the word can't dwell in you richly unless you're memorizing, taking it in. Let it sink into your soul. But it's not just memorizing, it's meditating. And you can't meditate on something unless you've memorized it, right? Right? You've got to have something in your head if you're going to think about it over and over and over again, if you're going to meditate. For example, if a chef wants to marinate some meat, that meat's not going to be marinated if the marinated stays in the jar in the fridge. You have to take it out, you have to apply it to the meat, and then you have to let it sit there. And as it sits there, it will sink into uh, that meat and it will change the texture, it will change the flavor, it will change everything. How? Through marination. Or what the Bible refers to as meditation, spiritual marination, so to speak. Meditating on the Word. So we wanna get the word into us by memorizing it and then we wanna meditate, we wanna think, let it dwell in us richly. And then another way that the Bible sinks into our souls is when we learn to communicate the word. Right after he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in Colossians chapter three, he says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Teaching and admonishing one another. Speak about the things that you're learning. Speak about the things that you're growing. Let the word come out of you in your conversations your conversations. Let it come out of you naturally. Let it come out of you organically. Let the word come out of you so that you're communicating the word. And as you're doing so, the word is sinking deeper into you. It's becoming a part of who you are. A guy by the name of C.H. Spurgeon was a pastor in London, England in the 19th century. and. And it was said of him because he spoke so freely and naturally, uh, the, the word of Christ has kind of come out of him in his ordinary conversations, that it was said that if you cut Spurgeon, he would bleed biblene. The Bible would just bleed out of him. And I, would, I think that's a holy ambition to have as a follower of Jesus, whether you're a pastor or not. It doesn't matter. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that if you get cut, bleed Bible. Uh, let, let that be what flows out of you. Again, it requires discipline, it requires work, It requires engaging with your faculties, the scriptures. And then lastly, you want to respond to the Bible with our hearts. Again, the doxological approach means to read and to study the Bible in a way that leads us to worship Christ. How is the Holy Spirit, uh, in what way or ways is the Holy Spirit leading me to worship Christ in and through this passage? So anytime we're reading and studying the Bible, we want to respond to it with our hearts recognizing a definition for worship that we said time and time again at our church is that worship is a rhythm of revelation and response, meaning God speaks, we respond. God shows himself in Christ, we respond with worship, with adoration, with obedience. This would be James chapter 1, verse 22, where James writes, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the law, the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, again, energy, endurance, discipline, persevere. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So we want to always be responsive. Every time you read the Bible, God is speaking to you. Every time. Whether you feel it or not, every time you read the Bible, God is speaking to you. And so every time you read the Bible, a response is required of you. A response of faith, a response of repentance, a response of obedience, a response of worship, of affection, whatever the case may be. And if you read it and you don't really feel like your heart is jumping in response to it, pray. Right? Say, God, would you incline my heart to heed your word, to obey your word, to respond to your word? Ask God to help you respond appropriately to the word. This is why... The Bible puts so much emphasis on faith. As followers of Jesus in the world that is, we are living by faith, not necessarily by feelings. We're reading the scriptures, we're trusting, we're responding in faith, which means, again, discipline precedes delight. Response doesn't have to come because you feel like it. Response just has to come because you believe that behind this passage, there's a God who loves you. There's a God who wants what's best for you. There's a God who's wanting to recreate you into the image of Christ, and he's at work doing so, so we want to respond every time we read and study the scriptures. And so here's some questions that may help you do that, to respond to the Bible with your hearts. Anytime you read a passage, you interpret the passage, and you seek to apply the passage, here's a grid that you can run, you can run it through. You can ask yourself, is there a command for me to obey in this passage? Is there a command for me to obey? Is there a promise for me to claim? Is there a sin I need to repent of? Is there a beauty for me to behold? That's one that I think is, is very, uh, is overlooked. Sometimes you just need to read the Bible and just see God as beautiful. There's not much you need to do. There's nothing you need to go and say or tell another. You just need to behold the beauty of God in whatever passage you're reading. Is there a truth to believe? Is there something I'm learning about God's ways that I need to believe or about his love that I need to believe? Is is there a service to render? Is there there something I need to do that's service-oriented? Is there a mission to fulfill? How is this leading me to make disciples? Is there an example to follow? Is there an example to follow? Now, I said last night we don't read the Bible simply to find examples to follow. We said we read the Bible primarily as substitution, not imitation or imputation, not imitation, but there is imitation. There is an example. There are examples to follow in the scriptures, but the examples we follow in the scriptures are always leading us. How is this person uh, showing me what it looks like to follow Christ? How is this character showing me what it means to trust God or to distrust God? How can I not be like that person sometimes? You wanna see that in the Bible. Not all the examples in the scripture are positive. Some of them are negative. Some of them are warnings to us. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, don't steal from the church, that's the key, Uh, it's a negative example, Uh, but they are both negative and positive examples for us to follow, but we want to follow every example to Christ, because we read, we interpret, we apply the Bible so that we might know Christ and the holistic salvation that he has um, come to offer. Now, I know that's a lot. Hopefully there'll be time for you to process this material and to continue talking about it. And again in the fall, I hope to come back to this stuff and to take a slower approach in a different setting so that we can grow in our knowledge of the scriptures and our ability to read and to study the Bible. Now, it's lunchtime. They asked us to be on time, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll go get our kids and, and proceed. God, I pray that by your grace, you would help us each time we open up the Bible to read it. Help us to meet Christ there. Give us grace, give us know-how, give us the ability to be able to read the scriptures and to interpret them and to apply them in ways that would lead us to worship your son uh, faithfully, to worship your son fruitfully. Help us to grow as your people in this world. Help us to mature in our faith. Help us to study the Bible in such a way where we are led to know Christ well and the holistic salvation you have offered us through him. God, we love you and we pray for your help in this venture, all in Jesus' name, amen.